I think everyone needs a coach. I mean, mentorship and guidance have been incredibly crucial in our development as a company. So I thought I'd introduce you to some amazing coaches as part of this special series of Meet My Business. So on today's episode of Meet My Business, I have the great pleasure to introduce you to Eric from Mielen. He helps leaders catalyze their people, teams, and culture to be more effective and more profitable. Um, so this is typically our coaching edition of Meet My Business, although Eric doesn't quite brand himself as a coach or ever. He has a massive amount of experience in the leadership um, development space, and I think he's got some incredible insights that he's going to share with us today. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks so much for the invitation and uh, for having me on board. Uh, it's going to be a good afternoon. Awesome. Awesome. Really, really excited to get into um, what Eric calls the trust equation and how to build trust with your audience and market and why that's so incredibly important. But before we get to that, I think it's time, Eric, for you to maybe just introduce yourself a little bit, give us a bit of background on who you are and kind of what you do. Thank you very much, Ethan. Yeah, I've been um, in the consulting space since 1999 which is virtually a lifetime. I think it's like 24 years at the moment, but I've stopped counting because I'm just getting grayer by the day. I can't get any more gray. But I think what kind of sets what I do apart from a lot of the other folks in the space is I have this unique combination of uh, experiencing two very diverse fields, uh, one being the management consulting field, where, as I said, I've been involved in since 1999. Uh, and in that space, doing a lot of work around culture development, leadership, uh, and what I call behavioral strategies. In other words, how can we influence um, what our customers think, what our customers feel, what our employees think and feel by adopting and adapting the behaviors that we exhibit? You know, so often from a corporate perspective, we find that um, corporates tend to break trust because there's little alignment between what marketing says they do and what they actually do. Uh, and so I spend a lot of time aligning marketing with HR so that the company actually behaves in the way that marketing says it behaves. And the second uh, area that I gather a lot of insights from and that I marry with my management consulting experience is that of an adventure and expedition leader. So I'm owner of an expedition business called Explore. And we lead expeditions to some of the seven summits, to we walk to the South Pole, we ride our mountain bikes across Tibet. Uh, and, you know, that in itself has a unique set of challenges and um, requirements from, from me as a leader and from what we need to do very quickly in terms of building a team. Because, you know, going to mountains and altitude, if you get that wrong, that could absolutely kill you. And I've got the great distinction of having throughout the 20 odd years of doing that, bringing everyone, a ho bringing everyone home alive with all their fingers and all their toes. <laughs> to which their families, I'm sure, are, are, are pretty grateful. So in a nutshell, that, uh, that's what I do. And the two worlds that I marry in the, the insights that I provide. How did you get into the world of uh, being an expedition leader? I Genuinely have no idea how someone decides this is the company I'm going to start. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure how I got into that <laughs> as well. Other than just look, no, look, you know, I had a real interest in adventures and expeditions from from high school dads, and I remember in high school already planning trips to to Nepal and Annapurna and and and, and that sort of thing. But then it kind of culminated in a fairly uh, fortuitous uh, meeting with 
uh, South African adventurer Alex Harris, uh, and we were both on the speaking um, circuit. Well, we were still both on the speaking circuit, but we were speaking at the same conference. And I'd finished my slot uh, early. I was the opening speaker. And the organizers asked me if I wouldn't mind fetching somebody at the airport, which is kind of unusual. Uh, but I kind of said, well, yeah, sure, you know, because I'm sitting around doing nothing. Popped around to the airport and the speaker that I was picking up was uh, Alex Harris. And he'd just returned from the South Pole. So, you know, we'd known of each other, but never really met. And that kind of led to us starting a friendship and getting uh, Explore off the ground. Um, Alex has since moved on from Explore, but, uh, you know, that's how I got into it. It really sounds like a super fascinating world. What I'm really curious about is so some of the experiences that you've had there, like how do they directly correlate to the work that you do with businesses? What does climbing a mountain have to do with running a company? I, I think there are huge correlations, um, particularly in terms of, you know, when you're running a company, the 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 company stuff, if I can call it that, the balance sheets, uh, that kind of stuff is really easy to manage. Um, it's the people piece that becomes so intricate and so difficult. And, you know, we find that companies, you know, if, if you look at businesses that fail and, you know, the statistics around entrepreneurship is, is staggering, the number of businesses that don't make it past five years. Um, and often that's not because of balance sheets, um, distribution, you know, the, the kind of technical things. It's more often around the people thing. And what we find in many businesses that fail, or as I say, lose their flavor, it's not because of the product. It's because of the people who interact with the market. So I use an, an, an analogy that I call cordialism, where a glass, an empty glass, is the structure that allows you to do business. So to that, you then add the cordial, which is the flavor. It's the problem that your business solves in the market. And that's not palatable either. It's too sweet. You can't drink it. You can't sell it. So you add a, an element called brand. You add the people element. Um, you add the other things that make a business a business. And that's akin to adding water to that cordial. Now, every business on the planet, I firmly believe, gets that right at some point. The perfect mix between cordial and water, the brand, the service, the product. And that allows them to be successful. But that leads to their downfall because the more successful you become, the more people want your product, your business, your service, whatever it is. And so what do you do? You now add more people to make that happen. But the people that you add all have different values, different goals, different objectives. And so the distance between you as the founder of the business and the people who work in the business and the results that you generate gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you keep adding water to the cordial, what happens to your flavor? Sooner or later, it gets diluted and becomes bland and it becomes just like everybody else. And the customers that used to love us now hate us. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens on, on, on mountains. You know, we get a group of people who often are strangers. We meet them two or three times before um, each expedition, often only online. And then we meet in Mendoza for argument's sake. On day one, day two, we leave to climb a 7,000 meter high mountain. And instantly, I've got to find ways to get the team to work together, to align goals, to align strategy, to manage conflict, to manage expectations. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, the stuff that we do to be successful on mountains absolutely just transfers directly 
into the people elements and the stuff that we need to be successful in 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 business. If you think of managing change, for example, you know, climbing high mountains, there there's this constant sense of change. You've got to watch the weather all the time. You've got to watch everybody's health. You've got to monitor everybody's progress, and things will change in a heartbeat. You know, um, and I remember in 2016 on 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 that we had everyone set. We were ready to start our summit, but this crazy storm came through the mountain and they shut the mountain down. Two of our tents were blown out of camp one. We lost gear, we lost food. And now, you know, how do we regroup? How do we keep the team motivated? Um, how do we deal with losing people who leave the expedition? Um, and, and how do we deal with this whole idea of goal setting, which often becomes, for me, a real red herring in, in life, in business? Because if we become too focused on a goal, and we're not worried about the process or we're not concerned about how we achieve the goal. We set ourselves up for um, ethical issues, for fraud, um, on mountains, that kind of stuff kills you. you know? So it's around understanding the process um, and making that the goal in itself. Because on mountains, if you're putting so much um, gravity into standing on a particular piece of this planet, Sooner or later, you're going to make a really bad decision and it's going to cost you your life. Uh, but if you're focused on the process and you find purpose in that process and not in the outcome, it means that, you know, when people come to mountains with us and they don't summit or we don't summit, which sometimes happens, and you're not inv and you're invested in the process, it means that you now have the opportunity to leave the mountain undefeated. Uh, having learned something and willing to come back to the same place in the future. Whereas if you're only invested in the outcome, you know, we've had that incident. Um, we had a, a, a guy in 2020, January, just before COVID, uh, on, on, on a big mountain with us. And he was so vested in the outcome that he started fighting with me and the rest of the team about the process to the point where I wasn't budging on the process because I firmly believe in it. And he left our expedition um, he got someone else to guide him. And I saw him about a week or so later after leaving our expedition. He had full-blown pulmonary edema. He was on death's door, helicopter evacuation off the mountain. You know, sometimes you just have to respect the process because when you respect the process and the process is right, that leads to crazy amounts of success later on. And it allows you to kind of keep your ethics and your integrity intact. For me right now, what's very fascinating is where we are in our company is, I think we're like 95% cordial still at this point. We've been growing the company slowly but surely, and we're at the point now where we're getting people on board, we're getting team members bit by bit, the very early days of that. And we're also really thinking a lot about our processes. We know what our goals are, it's mostly sales targets, but process-wise, all of that stuff has to get in place. And I think there's a lot of small businesses out there who are kind of in that same situation where they are either single founder, co-founder, you know, solopreneurs who are then eventually wanting to become a real business and not just creating work for themselves. So, you know, you've got to start putting water in the cordial, right? For companies in that stage who are starting to get more people on board, how do you make sure that things align properly? How do you make sure that you actually kind of make the right decisions and maybe just some broad advice that you might have for companies at that stage? Yeah, certainly. Um, I, th I think the key in setting yourself up for um, scaling and, and, and growth 
is putting in place from the outset a really solid set of values and a really solid culture. Uh, people work for companies that they not only like and admire, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a broader sense, in the good old days where jobs were plentiful and you could choose where you wanted to work, um, there's a lot of research that shows that people did really, that employees did really well in companies whose values matched their own values. Uh, it means that employees can come to work in a fully congruent state and they don't feel that they have to be someone else or, 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 or um, pretend in, in order to fit in at work. So if you, as a business, start out um, creating a solid platform with really um, powerful values, and by that I don't mean corporate roles. Um, I was intrigued a couple of years ago doing a lot of work for one of the major banks in South Africa, and their top-line value is delivering shareholder um, values, something along those lines. And it's the very first thing that's written on their sheet of business values. Now, the question, I suppose, is, and, and that poster, by the way, was stuck also in the inside of the uh, security hut for the guard at the front gate. <laughs> now, what is, how does the value of delivering share in shareholder value how does that translate into behavior for the security guard? You know, we can understand how that might translate for someone in middle or senior management. But the problem lies in what a lot of companies are doing in terms of values. And that's saying, well, let's look at what we want to achieve and disguise that as a value to, 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 to drive behavior. Whereas really powerful values, true values are filters for decision-making, you know, um, all companies have values and then they choose to write them on the ward of reception or stick them on the poster in the security guard ad. But as a family, I bet you also have values. But if I came to visit you at home and I walk through your front door, I can tell you now your family values aren't written on the wall by the front door. And the reason they're not written there is because they are not only intrinsic, but they are lived and experienced. Um, and when you don't live them, there's an experience or a consequence attached to that as well. You know, um, I mean, do, do yourself a favor and go and Google Enron values. You know, for for the younger folk around, Enron was like the poster child of corporate fraud <laughs> and uh, um, is legality uh, in, in, in the U.S. about probably about 15 years ago. But if you go and look at their values, their values looked really sound. Things like teamwork, integrity. But they practice the exact opposite. You know, so the first thing is to then, as you're about to scale your business, make sure your values are really strong, really powerful. And secondly, then how does that translate into the behaviors that describe your culture? And culture really isn't owned by marketing or by HR, but it's essentially around the behaviors that are tolerated, um, accepted, and not sanctioned with, within your business. So by having strong values and a really strong culture defined by behaviors, it makes it very difficult for people who don't really fit into your business to fit into your business, if, 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 if that makes sense. Um, one of the really amazing stories, um, and there's a book that you, if you haven't read it, you've got to read it. It's called Delivering Happiness by a guy named Tony Shea. And Tony Shea 
um, invested in a company called Zappos.com, an online shoe store that was eventually bought out by Amazon for hundreds of millions of dollars. But when Tony started um, as an investor and then took over as CEO of Zappos, one of the first things that they did was they had a look at how they recruited. Uh, and they recruited to fit culture, not the other way around. And I think that's where a lot of small businesses go wrong, is we haven't got our recruitment process properly refined. And we recruit more on gut feel and CV rather than on culture fit. So what Zappos and Tony Shea and them did was, firstly, no matter what your new position was, um, even if you were the new CFO, you started your first month in the call center, which is the absolute heart of an online business. And that allowed a couple of things to happen. For Firstly, for other staff to experience the, the, the new hire. Secondly, for the new hire to really experience the culture. Thirdly, for the new hire to understand that being customer-centric is, is, is what the business is, is, is all about. And then the second thing that Zappos did is if somebody within their first four months, I think it was, chose to leave because they didn't like it there or they didn't fit in or they didn't think the job was what they thought it would be, they would pay them a three-month severance package. And it means that if someone didn't feel entirely comfortable, didn't really fit in, they weren't forced to stay there because they needed the job and they needed the money. <laughs> and, you know, these two things are really powerful in, in employing people and keeping that flavor of your business, keeping that cordialism intact so that, you know, the reasons people work there don't become too far from um, the founder members and, and, and the original ethos of the business. Because, you know, ultimately, people who come and work for you work for you for their reasons, not your reasons. That is genuinely such interesting advice. And we've been, you know, as a company, working on our values, putting them in place. But I think I, th I think we have to spend more time on this, genuinely, myself and my co-founder, to really make sure that everybody is aligned and that and how we communicate that as well and as you said not just have it be a post on a wall but actually something we love so we're going to move on to the final discussion of today's episode and specifically around trust you know uh trust with your audience and market is incredibly important for companies because without it you know people just physically will not feel comfortable buying for you and i'm assuming many other issues can occur but i know that you have formulated kind of a way to think about this called the, the trust equation so can you maybe just Walk us through that. Yeah, either, absolutely. And, you know, the more I work with this trust equation um, and the more companies kind of experience it and, and, and we talk about it, I think the broader the applications for this become. You know, and for, I think for the, for the initial part, we all understand or we're starting to understand how important trust really is. But trust, because it's a feeling, um, is often very difficult to define. One of the exercises I often do with my audiences in, 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 in live sessions um, when we talk about irrational feelings and, and decisions um, is around asking someone in the audience, someone who's married or in a committed relationship, I ask them, what are the three things, the three characteristics that you saw in your life partner that allowed you to say, yes, this is Mr. or Miss Wright? And the first thing I find is that People find that very difficult um, to, to define. So, you know, so then, so what are those three things that attracted you to your husband or your wife? 
and they find that difficult. Secondly, when they then actually can put their finger on three things, those three attributes are very, very generic. <laughs> and I find that across the board, there's probably no more than five or six attributes that are assigned to, 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 to significant others. So once they tell me that, I then say to them, okay, so is there anybody else in your friendship circle at that time where you met your significant other that had the same qualities? And every single time they admit that, yes, there were other people who were kind and good-looking and had a, um, you know, ticked all those boxes. So then the next question is, then why did you choose this person? And the truth of the matter is no one knows because falling in love is an irrational decision. But we justify it after the fact when people say to us, oh, Ethan, so why did you fall for Ethan? Um, and so then we justify it. Trust is exactly the same. Unless we codify it, we kind of go by gut feel. And we say, well, you know, I kind of like this person because of how they dress, what their website looks like, how they answer emails. Um, but you can't really put your finger on it. So let's codify it and look at what are the attributes that allow us to build trust or break trust um, with our market, with our employees, with, with our customers. And the first part of the trust equation is what we call credibility. And credibility really is this idea of what the brand's words are or your words and how believable they seem. Um, I attended a, a business networking function on La, 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 last week, recently. And the speaker was uh, relatively charismatic, um, made a good point to tell the audience about how wealthy they are, how they take trips overseas, how they're investing in property overseas, how they own a Ferrari. But his shoes were old, cheap, and dirty. So there's this lack of congruence between the words and the image. You know, so when we look at this first aspect of credibility, it's around how competent and capable you seem. Um, people ask themselves, I can trust you to say um, what you say about. Um, and it's about how much you know, your credentials, confidence, um, what you inspire in others. You know, so my brand um, with Ridgeline, we've been, I've been consulting since 1999. That's 24 years. I've been guiding expeditions for 20 years, we've brought people back with all the figures, all their toes and alive. That builds credibility. So to build your own credibility is how can you share your experience, your knowledge? Um, how can you be transparent about what you know and what you don't know? You know, so many people who in, enter a market initially pretend to know everything and they feel that by not knowing something, they show vulnerability and you know, if you look at leadership research, vulnerability builds credibility in, in a massive way um, from, from a leadership perspective. So the first aspect is credibility. The second aspect is reliability. And this is around your actions and how dependable you seem. Reliability says, if I say I'm going to do something, then I do it. Um, it's around your audience saying, I can trust you to do what you say you do, when you say you're going to do it. Are you consistent in your track record? Um, does your audience have a common frame of reference with you and the shared understanding? You know, um, 
So we build reliability by making and keeping lots of small promises to build a track record. Well, one of my sort of key tests when kind of testing somebody in terms of trust and reliability is um, around small things. Like, you know, someone says, uh, I'll phone you back. How often do you actually phone somebody back? <laughs> you know, and my sort of golden rule on that is when you verbalize intent, you've made a commitment. And I think sometimes we're just too quick, too easy, too fast to verbalize intent. I'll phone you back. I'll respond to your email. Let me think about it. And then of course, you never do. Um, and lots of small failures in reliability tends to break down trust in, 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 in a very big way. So if you think of the trust equation as a division sum, um, above the line, you've got credibility plus reliability plus the third one, intimacy. And that's got nothing to do with what happens after dark or during load shedding, right? But intimacy, literally around your emotions and how safe people feel sharing with you, how close you are to your customers, how easily accessible you are to your market. Um, about a year ago, my Facebook account was hacked and I was locked out of it for probably about four or five months. I'd given up on it and uh, March this year, I said, well, let me give, give it another shot to get back in, which oddly, remarkably suddenly worked. The problem though is that the hackers had run up a $500 ad account um, on my Facebook <laughs> um, network. Do you think I can speak to anybody at Facebook? to try and figure out how to get rid of that debt or sort it out or move past it. It's completely impossible. Facebook scores a massive zero on intimacy. Uh, it's completely impossible to get hold of anybody. Um, and so we build intimacy by creating a higher level of emotional security around us, um, levels of empathy, for, 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 for example. Um, we, we build it by demonstrating vulnerability, by reacting to emotions behind what's being said when we communicate with our market, with with our customers. And the, the bigger the intimacy we build, the more trusted we are as a brand. And so above the line, you've got credibility, reliability, and intimacy. All of this is then divided by the denominator, which sits below the line, which we call self-orientation. Now, we've all met people that when you speak to them, when we interact with them, everything is just all about themselves. High orientation is very high, or self-orientation is very high. And self-orientation around your motives and focus on yourself versus others. And the reason self-orientation is the denominator is that people or companies with a very high self-orientation find it really difficult to score high on the trust equation. Because if it's all about me, if I'm your if, if you're my customer, you're not really trusting me. So I can trust and care I can trust you to care about me, um, my products, etc. High self-orientation results in low trustworthiness. And it's important that we make that distinction as well. And so high um, self-orientation manifests as selfishness or self-obsession. And brands that fall into that category find it really, really difficult um, to, 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 to build trust. 
So we keep our self-orientation score low by maintaining a sense of self while being present to our clients and our customers' needs, um, by checking in with our clients to see if our approach works for them. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting. People who enter any market tend to be very customer-centric. The customer's always right. We'll do anything to please them. Uh, the faster they grow, the bigger they get, the higher the self-orientation becomes and the lower the needs and requirements of the customers become. You know, and so we hear companies saying, well, this is our product. This is how we work, like it or lump it. Um, and ultimately, our flavor then becomes so diluted that our customers do say, well, okay, we're lump it and we're going to find someone who has a lower self-orientation um, and, um, and can actually meet our needs. So when we look at that trust equation, you know, we can, as a brand, as a business, as an individual, regularly conduct a bit of an audit on that and say, well, you know, where is my credibility at? What have I done to build it? How reliable am I? How intimate am I as a brand with my market and, and, and my customers? Can they get hold of me? And we can assign a score to each of them and then divide it by our self-orientation as the denominator and say, well, are we still really all about the customers or is that just marketing speak? Does that reflect in our culture and in our behaviors? And uh, this is a, a very powerful way that we can look at leadership, that we can look at brands, that we can look at marketing uh, to see you know, how trustworthy we are and uh, how our customers um, really, whether they are the central or universe or not. Eric, this has been a genuinely fascinating chat. I feel like I have learned an incredible amount. As a small business owner, a lot of this is super foundational to what we need to be doing. And I cannot wait to continue following you and learning more and more about um, just how to level up as a business owner. It's, it's been incredible. That being said, if somebody would like to get a hold of you, um, maybe to perhaps uh, to chat about expeditions or in your capacity in leadership, how can they do so? Very easy. I'm still old school. So email works best for me, eric, E-R-I-K, at ridgelinez.com. Uh, but of course, we are on um, LinkedIn as well, Eric Vermeulen, and uh, the, the normal social media channels, Facebook and um, Instagram as ridgeline underscore global. And the links for everything will be in the description of this episode. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, but don't really know where to start, go to our website, Baird.media. That's B-A-I-R-D dot media. You can find the book, Become a Podmaster, everything you need to know to master the art of podcasting, and you can also sign up to one of our mentorship programs where we help you figure out, develop, and produce your show from start to finish.